text for the sermon this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. The most heretical error which the rabbis and priests within Israel had come to embrace was that the predicted Messiah would be a mere man reigning from Jerusalem over an earthly throne. Because these religious leaders did not understand the Messiah to be both God and man, they looked in blindness upon the Son of God. They blasphemously called the Son of God an imposter who was able to perform miracles because he was filled with demons. You see, these rabbis had separated into two different persons the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 and the reigning Messiah of Isaiah chapter 9. When in fact the suffering servant and the reigning Messiah were one and the same person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. As evidenced by the passage before us today, these religious leaders were willfully blind. They did not want to see nor hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Even when the Lord shows them so clearly from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah would be both God and man, they refused to believe it. Dear ones, all that we have revealed to us in the Bible rests very firmly and squarely upon this truth that we are looking at today. For Christ declared Himself to be the Son of God and the Son of David. Not only the Son of God, nor only the Son of David, but both. And if this is not true, then I would submit that the God of the Bible is a myth. That salvation through Jesus Christ is in vain. And that the Bible is in fact a collection of fables and legends by mere men. However, on the other hand, I declare unto you, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, by the authority of the Word of God, that this is a non-negotiable truth that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and the Christ who came in fulfillment in the New Testament is who He claimed to be. The divine Son of God and the human Son of David. Ultimately, I rest everything I believe upon this truth. And so does every Christian. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are the following. The question concerning David's greater son, Mark 12:35. Number two, the Old Testament proof concerning David's greater son, Mark 12:36. And thirdly, the conclusion 
concerning David's greater son in Mark 12, verse 37. First of all, then, the question concerning David's greater son. Follow along with me, if you will, in Mark 12:35. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? In the previous sermon, you may recall that the Pharisees or scribes, those words seem to be used at times interchangeably. Here in Mark, they're called scribes. In Matthew's parallel account, they're called Pharisees. But nevertheless, they had appointed one from their midst to approach Christ with the ensnaring question that we find in Mark 12:28, which is the first commandment of all. And you'll recall that the Lord, in his answer, first pointed that scribe to the covenant of grace in Mark 12:29, when he said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There must be a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If there is any fulfillment of the commandments of God, it must begin there. For only Jesus can fulfill the law of God. None of us can. And then the Lord gave to this scribe a summary of the moral law of God in the hand of the mediator. And he summarized it under two heads that we find in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now the Lord in our text today follows up his response by asking a question of those same scribes that had just presented this ensnaring question to him. He asks, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? In Mark 12:35. Now this seems to imply that when it says that he answered and said that in the course of his teaching there that there must have arisen a, a question concerning the Messiah. That's not actually stated, but this must be inferred if he answered something that normally there would be a question that's asked or something being discussed with regard to the topic of the subject. What we find, therefore, in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, forms the reply of the Lord to this inquiry. Here, as the Lord prepares for his own death, just three days away now, he continues to challenge even those who were plotting his own death to understand who he truly is. It's interesting. He did not turn away from those whom he knew was plotting his death, conspiring together 
to crucify Him. He kept, as it were, reaching out to them with the truth. To the final moment, He kept reaching out to those who were to put Him to death with the truth. Presenting the claims of truth. Inviting them by these claims to come to Him. To see Him. In all of His glory and His mercy and His grace. as they conspire to put Christ to death by their wicked plans, they will do so against the truth, which Christ has clearly presented to them in both word and miraculous deed. They were without any excuse. And this is true of all of us. All of us who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of us who have sat under faithful preaching, All of us who have been in family worship where the truth has been presented, all of us are without excuse. None of us will be able to have an excuse that we can offer to God on that final day and say, but Lord, I didn't understand. Lord, it wasn't made clear to me. No. The Lord is made abundantly clear. The Lord Jesus, through His minister today, declares to you the truth. Do not simply take this particular passage that we're reading today as Christ merely speaking to the scribes. Christ is declaring who He is to each of you so that you can embrace Him by faith, so that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, so that you can renew your faith in Him if you find yourself struggling, as most of us do throughout our Christian life. Dear ones, there is no so-called wisdom, there is no so-called truth that can stand against the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And no man can come to the Father but by Him. Let us then not turn down the volume today as the Spirit of God speaks to us through His Word concerning the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Let us rather embrace Him by faith as the Son of God and as the Son of David the question the Lord puts to the scribes actually focuses on their unanimous consent in affirming that Christ, the one predicted in the Old Testament, or the Messiah, Christ being in Greek, anointed one, Messiah being in Hebrew, the anointed one, that the Messiah would be the son of David. There was no no argument or dispute over that particular point amongst the uh, rabbis. They believed that, in fact, the Messiah would be of the lineage and of the seed of David. And so when Jesus questions them by saying, How say the scribes, and then he continues with the question. How, say the scribes? He is really inquiring in what sense or in what way 
say the scribes that Christ is the son of David. What Christ was asking, in effect, was this. Is the Christ, is the Messiah only the son of David in the sense of simply being of his flesh? Is he only a mere man within the royal line of David? This seems to be the focus of the question that he puts to the scribes. You see, this was precisely what the scribes and the Pharisees taught, that he was, that the Messiah was only to be mere flesh of the, of the line, the lineage of David, a mere man. But the Scripture, on the other hand, taught, as we shall see, that Christ would be more than just a mere man. This has many parallels today. Amongst many religious groups who teach the same heresy that Jesus Christ is only a mere man. Dear ones, I submit to you that you remove the deity of Jesus Christ and you are not left with a good man at all. You're left, rather, with a psychopathic liar who deceived the masses and performed amazing feats by hypnotism, illusion, or demonic possession. That's what you're left with if you remove the deity of Jesus Christ. Anyone who simply says, I believe Jesus Christ was a good man, he can't have it that way because Jesus didn't claim to merely be a good man. That's not an option nor an alternative to the question, who is Jesus Christ? He was not a mere good man. That's what the scribes thought, that he would be basically a man anointed by God, a great prophet anointed by God, but Jesus didn't merely claim to be that. For if Christ, dear ones, was not the Son of God, if he was not the second person of the Godhead, then how do we explain what he said about himself? Take just two examples. John 8, verses 58 and 59, where he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham lived, existed, he doesn't say I was, just asserting his, his, his living before Abraham. But he says, before Abraham was, I am, thereby associating himself with the great I am that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. That is the name by which God identified himself to Moses. I am. I am who I am. And the people certainly understood him to be saying that because they took up stones to stone him immediately for his blasphemous words. In another case, we find in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, and we could, again, amplify many, many more places and examples where Christ either asserts himself to be God or asserts himself to have divine attributes. 
but we will limit ourselves in the interest of time to these two today. You'll remember in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We are one in nature because the Son partakes of the nature of the Father. And again, Jehovah Witnesses cannot possibly have the right understanding of this passage if they assert that Jesus was merely saying, the Father and I have similar goals, have the same goals. We're one by having the one purpose, one mind. Because again, it says very clearly that they took up stones to stone him because he made himself equal to God by what he said. Now, in either case that we've mentioned here, Jesus didn't back down, even though they took up stones to stone him. He didn't say, no, wait a minute, I think you guys misunderstood me here. I'm not saying what you think I said. He didn't qualify it at all. He continued to lay claim that he was the second person of the Godhead in flesh. Can you imagine? I mean, we one day will see the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person in the Godhead in flesh. But to walk, to talk with God in flesh. What a glorious thing. But the disciples and those living at that time certainly had that great privilege. And we can read the scriptures and we can be benefited by faith through all that is recorded in the scriptures. But we will, our faith will be put aside in a sense when we see the Lord. Because we'll see him as he is. We'll see him face to face. But we not only have what the Lord said about himself, we also have what others said about him as well. And again, we could go on and on and on, but I simply would point out to you three passages very quickly. One from the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now here is obviously someone who is a human being. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Mighty God. This was prophesied concerning Christ to come. He wasn't simply a good man. He wasn't merely an anointed prophet. He was the Mighty God. And all that the cults do to try to minimize that particular verse is in vain because the Father identifies himself as well with those same words, the mighty God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, 
another testimony about Jesus Christ and who He was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That is, the Word was with God the Father. And the Word was God. It's interesting, again, because very clear distinction is made in verse 1 here, in that there is the article, in English the article is the, there is an article in the Greek language when it says, and the word was with God, the article is used there. That points out a distinct person when the article is used. Whereas when we come to, and the word was God, there is no article used. When there is no article used, it points out not distinctive person, but nature. And so it is not saying that the Son, that the Word was the same person as the Father. It's saying that the Word partook of and was of the same nature as God. He was God in nature. Verse 3 makes it very clear who the Word was that He must be God, the Creator of all things, because it says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Cults, like the Jehovah Witness, will say that God created Jesus Christ first, who then created all things. Well, if that's the case, Look at the verse there in verse 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The inference that we must draw if, that, if, if the JWs are right is that Christ created Himself. Because nothing has come into being that Christ did not create. And if He's a created being, He created Himself. Very clear testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the testimony of Thomas. Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 28, who cries out upon seeing Christ, seeing His wounds, My Lord and my God. Jesus does not again refrain from receiving these acclamations. He receives them. He, in effect, accepts the fact that He is both Lord and God. As I said, He is either who He claimed to be and who others by inspiration of the Holy Spirit claimed that He was, or he was a very wicked, wicked man. There is no neutral ground. He can't be simply a good man. But beloved, because he is who he claimed to be and who the other inspired writers claimed him to be, he is the eternal Son of God. And he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from this Christ, this Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures, there is no life, no forgiveness, 
There is no hope. Dear ones, only He can save and deliver. Only He can heal and restore us. He is our object of faith alone. The second main point, the Old Testament proof concerning David's greater son. In Mark chapter 12, verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou in my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord (coughs) takes the scribes and Pharisees to Psalm 110, verse 1, at this point. Christ says that David, being a prophet of God, spoke this prophetic psalm by inspiration of the Holy Spirit concerning the Messiah who was to come. This, the scribes and the Pharisees would not disagree with at all that this particular psalm spoke of the Messiah. That this, uh, that this psalm spoke of the greater son of David who was to come. They wouldn't disagree with that. Unlike modern rabbis and scribes who after years of no doubt arguing with Christians about this particular passage now deny that it has anything to do with the Messiah but now say that it refers to some historical figure like one of the Maccabees who came as a a savior or deliverer of Israel. But at this time they did not deny that this spoke of the Messiah, of the Son of David. Again, the Lord takes them from a point of common consent and demonstrates where this inspired text must lead them if they are consistent at all with their premises. He shows them, if only their eyes are open, what the truth of this passage is. Well, let us briefly consider Psalm 110.1 within the context of the entire psalm. This psalm speaks of the victorious reign of the Messiah, who also is appointed by the Father to be a priest, not after the perishable temporal order of Aaron, but after the everlasting order of Melchizedek so as to provide everlasting atonement and salvation for his people. It's uh, worthy to note, I believe, in Psalm 110.1, concerning the word Lord that is used there, when it says, the Lord said unto my Lord. Now, you probably noticed in your English version that there's a difference between the the script, the the way that that those words look. We still pronounce them the same in English as Lord, but in the first case, you'll notice that all of them, all the letters are in caps. Whereas in the second use of the word, only the first letter, L, and then 
O-R-D, are in lowercase letters. That uh, signifies two different Hebrew words that are used there. The first one, when it is used with regard to, uh, in all caps, it, it speaks of the word Jehovah, or some pronounce the word Yahweh, which refers in this context to God the Father. And sometimes in, in various contexts we can find that it refers to to, to uh, either the Son or the Spirit as well. But in this particular verse, it, it refers to the Father. The second use of the word Lord uh, is in the Hebrew, the word Adoni. Adoni, not Adonai, Adoni, which means my Lord. It comes from, again, Adon, meaning Lord, with the suffix at the end, a preposit or a um, not a, pre a pre but a um, pronominal suffix my so it refers to my Lord and this refers to the Messiah it refers to the son of David who was exalted to the Father's right hand So you see what is going on here. The Father, and I'm just going to substitute the Father and the Son for the words Lord and Lord. The Father said unto my Lord, or to the Son of God, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Concerning the Messiah or Lord here prophesied of, it is said that he is seated at the Father's right hand and rules not upon the earth, but rather rules from heaven. He's at the Father's right hand in heaven. That's where he's seated. Thus clearly the reign of the Messiah would not be as king over a political kingdom, from a throne in Jerusalem, as is taught by most premillennialists. Notice as well here how long the Messiah is said to be seated at God's right hand, reigning as king. The Father says, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, these two truths, I believe, destroy the premillennial coming of Christ to the earth and make it ever so clear that his coming to earth must be postmillennial. For if Christ is not to reign as king upon the earth, but rather is to reign at the right hand of God the Father, and if he is to reign in heaven at the right hand of God the Father until all his enemies are destroyed, his coming must necessarily be after the millennium because premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial all believe that there's death, that there's sin in the millennium. And if all Christ's enemies are put away at his coming, it can't be at the beginning. It cannot have a millennium to follow. His coming cannot come before the millennium. His coming must occur after the millennium. 
as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. The Apostle Paul picks up on this psalm in Psalm 110.1. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Here the Lord is talking about the resurrection, the final resurrection, the resurrection of believers. Christ is resurrected first as the first fruits, then every man in his own order afterwards. So it says, Christ the firstfruits in verse 23. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, at his second coming. Verse 24. Now, what comes after the second coming, the millennium? It says in verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25. For he must reign, this goes back to Psalm 110.1, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Where is he going to reign? In heaven. Until all of his enemies here upon the earth, beneath the earth, all are put under his feet. Notice what the last enemy is. Verse 26. The last en enemy that shall be destroyed is death. How can there be a millennium after that? There cannot be. Therefore, very clearly, the coming of Christ is not premillennial, but postmillennial. According to Psalm 110, verse 1. Here we have, dear ones, predicted by David the glorious reign of David's greater son. This prophecy concerning Christ was fulfilled in the resurrection, ascension, coronation, and continual rule of Christ during this age until he returns. This particular prophecy in Psalm 110.1. And we see, as we consider what Peter said in the sermon he preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 30-36, through which I won't go through, but you can look at, where he very clearly says David was a prophet. David wasn't the one who ascended from the dead to be seated at the right hand of God. It was, it was Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled that particular promise that was made in Psalm 110 where the Father says to, to the Son to sit at his right hand. Fulfilled at the time Christ was raised and ascended into heaven, seated at his right hand. Dear ones, we have the blessed privilege that we are not ourselves waiting in anticipation for Christ to be seated at God's right hand. That's what was what the Old Testament saints were waiting for Christ to be seated at God's right hand. In accordance with this promise, this, 
this prophecy. We are no longer waiting. It has occurred. It is an accomplished fact that Jesus Christ, a risen Lord, is reigning at God's right hand. He is already seated. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now He goes forth victoriously in His estate, not of humiliation, but exaltation. He may, in truth, grant Satan some rope throughout this time. But I assure you, dear ones, it is only rope enough for Satan and all his enemies, all of the enemies of Christ. It is only enough rope for them to hang themselves in the end. The Lord sets the wicked upon high places, even at the present time, in order that their fall may be more obvious and conspicuous to the righteous and so that the righteous will have even more to glorify God concerning. So that no one will be left in doubt as to who has accomplished this. Any more than anyone was in doubt who had delivered Israel as as the Red Sea parted and as they walked through on dry ground. And as those particular waves and as the water crushed down upon Pharaoh's army destroyed them all. No one was in doubt. So likewise, no one will be in doubt as Christ destroys his enemies in this age. Let us therefore, dear ones, not grow weary, disappointed, discouraged. Christ is upon the throne. He reigns victoriously. You know, we need not strive as if the battle is not won as if the battles yet needs to be won by Christ. We need not strive in that sense. Certainly we strive with sin. We, we continue to mortify the flesh in that sense, certainly. But we do so in dependence upon what Christ as our King, as our prophet, priest, and King has accomplished already and what He has promised us. You see, that takes that kind of striving that drives us to a point of hopelessness and despair entirely out of the picture because we are assured of victory. We are assured of victory. The enemies within this flesh and within this world may be active. They may seem overpowering, but they are already defeated foes who have no absolutely no legitimate power over us. Let us therefore, beloved, learn to rest in the certainty of Christ's victory regardless of our physical weaknesses, regardless of the spiritual battles that we face, regardless of our financial woes, regardless of the perversity of wickedness in high places, regardless of the multitudes that outnumber the people of God, let us look to Jesus Christ who is riding forth gloriously upon his white stallion and going forth from one victory unto another. 
You see, that's the only reason that the Apostle Paul could say what he did in Romans chapter 8. In verse 33 and following, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The final point in our sermon today is this, the conclusion concerning David's greater son. Mark 12, 37. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now the Lord draws his conclusion from the prophecy that we find in Psalm 110.1. As I said earlier, the Pharisees wholeheartedly agreed that Psalm 110 spoke of the Messiah, the son of David. With that agreement in view, the Lord says, how can the Messiah in Psalm 110, how can he be called Lord by David and yet be merely his son by natural generation as your Pharisees and scribes assert? You see what Christ is saying? He argues the Messiah must be more than a mere man. For although the Messiah proceeds from the seed of David and is truly man, David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord and therefore predicts that he shall be truly God as well. Paul says it so well in summarizing this in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. When he says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. The son of David, according to the flesh, but the son of God, declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. The Messiah, dear ones, is the eternal son of God. We come not to a king 
today in title only, as some monarchs are today. Some who are called king or queen uh, are merely titular heads, just in title, don't have a whole lot of authority and power. This is not true of Jesus Christ. For all authority in heaven and upon earth has been given unto him. And I would have you to know, dear ones, he's not a king who goes forth to crush his people. He's not a king who goes forth when he is angry and destroys his people, but goes forth rather to crush his enemies. We come to a king, beloved, who knows, who knows your weaknesses better than you know your own weaknesses, who knows your temptations, who knows your sins and how often you fall into sin. We come to a king who knows your sufferings because he is the son of David, because he was a man and is a man, because he lived here upon the earth and endured temptation and mockery and suffering of every kind more than we will ever experience. But we come to one, dear ones, who is not simply sympathetic with us, but can't do anything about it. As we as human beings become very sympathetic, but we may be unable to help someone else because we're limited and we're finite. But we come to a king who's touched with our infirmities, but who can do something about it and who has willed to overcome all of our enemies. In his time, it's an accomplished fact. It's a done deal because Satan and death have been overcome already. He has dealt once and for all with the issue of sin once and for all. And in this particular lifetime, we can experience, by God's grace, His royal power in our lives in overcoming sin and temptation and using that power even in the midst of our afflictions as well. Let us therefore, dear ones, not hear that Christ is David's Lord as did the Pharisees, and yet turn away from this Lord and turn away from this Christ. But let us rather receive the one who is declared unto us today in the Word as our Lord, as our Master, and as our God and King. To know that Christ is declared to be the Lord, the Son of God, is good and necessary. But it must lead, dear ones, to embracing Him as our own Lord and as our own King. And this we, beloved, collectively and individually testified to in the Lord's Supper last Lord's Day. As we not only looked at the bread and the wine, 
as we not only held the bread and wine in our hands, but as we ate of the bread, as we drank of the wine, we testified that we partake of the life of this king. We partake of the righteousness of this king. We partake of the forgiveness of this king. We partake of the strength of this king. He is our life. And he will be with us wherever we go. I close with, with this little illustration. When my children were young, like most children, they were afraid of the dark, at least as I recall. I might be called on this uh, later when I get home, but uh, I'm trying not to point, or sig- uh, point any particular child out. But you know, um, whenever, and I didn't always do this, sometimes I did tell them to go up the stairs without me, even if they were afraid of the dark. But I did at times also recall going up with them And you know, my presence with them made it appear as if they were bold as lions. Just my hand on their shoulder, hearing my footstep behind them. And I'm only a human father. But it encouraged them. It gave them power and courage to press on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Our King goes with us, dear ones. Let us embrace Him today. Let us go forward with courage. Whatever He sets before our path, He will give us the grace to endure. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We do thank Thee this day that Thou hast given to us such a faithful, loving, gracious, just, and righteous King. The people of the Old Testament rejoiced in David being king. We read, O Lord, from the scripture of Ittai, the Gittite, when David was leaving Jerusalem because Absalom had usurped the throne, Ittai would not leave David. Even though he was a foreigner, he would not leave David because he owned him as king. He said he would die or live with David. Oh Lord, those are our words today. We will live and we will die with Jesus Christ, our King. Give to us, O Lord, the grace to see that our King is both the Son of David and the Son of God. Give to us, O Lord, the grace to behold Him and to see Him in the darkness of the night when all around us seems so dark, when we feel so helpless. O Lord, give to us the grace to be able to see our King riding triumphantly upon that white steed as victor over Satan and sin and death. We pray, Father, that Thou would encourage Thy people this day with Thy word 
for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.